So it's gone for two weeks. I was actually here, but I wasn't teaching. Um, but before that, we've been going through a series called, I call it the gospel of the kingdom. People call it the Sermon on the Mount, and you can. But Jesus introduces what he's going to talk about in chapter four of Matthew and says, he went around preaching the gospel of the kingdom. So the gospel of the kingdom, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Brilliant, brilliant chapters. And the last time I talked, we talked about anxiety. Anxiety to me is a rampant problem in our country. The irony of anxiety in our country is this. We are safer than we've ever been, and yet we're more anxious than we've ever been. So there's a book I read a bit ago. It's called Thought or Factfulness by Hans Rowling. Um, and he just gives 10 like global things to show we're living in the best times ever. Like we're living in the safest world that we've ever been in. The irony of this book that uh, we're living in the safest world ever is Hans Rowling died from cancer right before he finished the book, which is just kind of ironic, like, oh, it's the safest world ever, and I died from cancer. So never forget that. There's always this kind of like, mm-mm, and we feel it. But some of the facts he gives, I found fascinating. The odds of you dying today from a natural disaster compared to 100 years ago. Here's a graph of it, right? And it's total deaths. You got a half a million in 1920, and the population has quadrupled in that same amount of time. So it's been a 99.99% reduction in the odds of you or I dying from a natural disaster. Do you believe that though? Here's why. Let me give you another graph. This is that red is the same natural disaster graph. The blue is number of disasters reported. What's happened? We're more informed. We're global now. You hear about natural disasters everywhere around the world. So now we hear about more and more natural disasters, even though they're not nearly as dangerous as they used to, but because it's in the news all the time, we are thinking, ah, the world's dying. Everything's going bad, right? So that's happening. So we now live in the safest time in history, and yet we're more anxious than any other time. So what's happening? I think it's maybe like this. Have you heard of an autoimmune disease where the body attacks itself? And one of the hypotheses is why we have autoimmune diseases and why they're increasing is called the hygiene hypothesis. We live in a much cleaner world right now, and because of that, you and I have this incredible thing called the immune system. And it's this hammer to smash diseases, right? Like polio and leprosy and bubonic plague and smallpox and tuberculosis. Like it's just ready to smash those things. But we're not seeing those diseases anymore. So the body has this incredible hammer to smash these diseases, but we don't have any these diseases anymore. So the body's like, fine, I'm gonna smash myself. I'm gonna use my hammer, because when you got a hammer, everything is a nail. I wonder if anxiety is like that. Our brains are these brilliant gifts from God. And they're to keep us protected in a difficult, dangerous, hard, broken world. 
But the world we live in is getting safer and safer and safer. So you've got this incredible weapon and it's sitting idly and it almost has to justify its existence. So oh, we got to be anxious about something. Life can't be that good. So let's freak out. I wonder if it's like that. Okay. So scientists found this. Kids, children are naturally programmed when they're born to be afraid of snakes and spiders. Probably pretty good because that can kill a little kid, right? But they're not afraid of Interstate 5 traffic. Today, which is more likely to kill them, right? Because we live in a much safer world. So Elijah John, he's my 16-year-old. Uh, he grew up in the country. We live, there's a road that dead ends. There's a driveway off of it. There's another driveway and there's another driveway and it dead ends into our property. He had zero traffic growing up, zero. So he would run free, just never worried about cars, never worried about traffic. Well, we come into town, we park our car, he gets out and he just take off running through the parking lot, right? Or take off running into the street. So we're like, bro, you can't do that. Like I started stopping at roadkill and getting out and saying, this is why, right there. I know he'll need counseling, but he is alive, okay? Because he just lives in a safe environment. So, all right. So I wonder if it's like that. Like anxiety is this incredible thing, but now we're targeting the wrong things. So I'll give you some examples. Anyone, any parent afraid their kid might be kidnapped? Well, that's, that's something you can be a little anxious about. There's about a one, and they say between two and a half and four million. Let's say there's a one in four million chance your kid will be kidnapped. But anyone anxious about putting your kid in your, your car and getting in an accident? Because there's a one in 40,000 chance that your kid will be seriously hurt or killed in an automobile. Right? We're worried about the wrong things. Why? Because they get reported and they're in the news. How about this fact? You are more likely to be killed by a vending machine than by a shark. True, right? Anyone afraid of a vending machine? We need lifeguards for a vending machine. Like, got a vending machine, clear a block, look out, right? Everybody back up. You know why you get killed by a vending machine? You put your money in, you press the buttons for Cool Ranch Doritos, it goes, and then it flips against the glass and sits there. So what do you do? You shake that machine. What does a vending machine do? falls and squishes you. That's what happens. What a terrible way to die, right? How would you like that funeral? You know, dad would still be here if it wasn't for Pepsi. I hate Pepsi. Down with Pepsi, right? So we have this like thing in us that, that has this power, but it's broken. So Jesus starts talking about anxiety. And there's two ways that you and I get anxious, right? One is there's this little teeny part of your brain. It's called the amygdala. It's the size of an almond. And the amygdala has this incredible power. It can literally take over your entire body. And it knows one thing. The amygdala knows nothing else. It knows one word, run. That's all it knows. And if it sees something that it believes is dangerous, the amygdala short circuits every other part of your body and just says, run. That's all it can do. It knows one word, run right? So if you see something that is really dangerous, like a bear, it's going to say, run, right? A spider, run. Snake, run. Tiger, run. 
public speaking, run, right? Whatever you believe is scary. So that's what the amygdala loves. It just takes over, does the things, run. But there's a second way that you can get anxious. It's where you think in a process of thinking, you actually trigger the amygdala, which knows one word, that's it, to say, run. So I'll give you some examples. Moms, you went out, you went for your job. You're coming home, you're doing your cool down. You're closing on your house. You see this beat up van with no windows driving by you. You look over, driver looks really sus, drives and he's headed right for your house and you know your son's out playing in the front yard. What happens in your heart? Run, right? He's sus, run. What happened? Your thinking triggered the exact same response because your amygdala knows one word, run. You're at a restaurant close to your house. You're sitting there, you're eating a meal. A fire truck goes by, sirens are blaring, and then they turn on your street, headed down toward your house. What goes through your mind? My house is on fire. Run, right? That's what happens. You are now triggering the same exact response. The stock market crashes. Your company is talking about bankruptcy. You're worried about your portfolio. Oh no, you're thinking about it at night. What happens? Run. You call your wife five times in a row. She does not answer the phone. What happened to her? Did she get hurt? Run, right? Same exact response. Police get behind you. Lights turn on. Run. <laughs> There's a disease actually that people can get. It's called Urbach-Weiss disease. It affects the amygdala. And after you get that disease, what happens to people, the majority of people that get this disease is they no longer fear anything and they don't have any anxiety. You're saying, smite me with that disease. That sounds like a cure, not a disease. I call it the pre-Eden brain or the Jesus brain, right? So Jesus is talking about this second kind of anxiety at the end of chapter six, where we begin getting these cycles of thinking that cause us to be triggered or whatever you wanna call it. So let's get caught up on what Jesus says and we'll talk again. So Matthew chapter six, verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? And Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? 
Therefore, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? Isn't that every morning for parents? <laughs> Your kids? What are we eating? What am I wearing? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Such a brilliant section. So, reviewing last time to catch us up. Big picture, Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, the beginning of verse 25 is connecting this to everything Jesus has been saying. And you can, big picture, look at this thing that Jesus does. And I summed it up last time was with this. Good God, broken world. You have a good heavenly father, but you exist in a broken world where there's lust and anger and unforgiveness and all these problems, but you still have a good God. And as Christians, we need to keep both of those things equally in mind. Because if we're all about good God, then we're gonna wonder why is there a war right now in Israel? Why did my mom get cancer? Why am I not blinging like my neighbor? But if all we think about is broken world, you'll be full and overwhelmed with anxiety. It's keeping both of those in balance. And I love that Jesus begins by saying, don't be anxious about your life. Because what does Jesus know you and I will do? We'll be anxious about life. You don't tell somebody not to do something that they never do. So Jesus knows life can produce anxiety. And Jesus' big ask for is, is this, what is life? Is life just what you eat and just what you drink and just the clothes that you wear? And you can modernize those real easy, and I did that last time. It's money, because what you ate 2,000 years ago was all based about how much money you had. Drink wasn't water, it was wine. It's fun. And then clothing would be looks. Is life only about money and fun and looks. Jesus says, I hope it's about more than that. I hope your definition of life is more than just what you have financially, what you do for fun and what you look like. And so last time we looked at the first one, money, eating, that whole side. And Jesus gives this analogy of birds that God has the Heavenly Father has presented a world where 4 billion or 400 billion, whatever your number wants to be, 400 billion birds get food. That's a system that's there, right? How brilliant is that? And then he says this, here's the truth you gotta get. You are much more valuable than 400 billion birds. Think about that for a second. Because we live in a time where our culture and science says that a human life is of the same value as an animal life, right? That we're just the latest evolutionary step. We're just a hairless ape. We're just a whatever, right? We're a cultured animal, that's all we are. 
That's not what the Bible says. That's not what the Bible says. But it's starting to affect us, I think. So I went on Facebook a while back. I know, it was miserable. And I noticed this. I noticed all these posts on, hey, I found a stray dog. I found a stray cat. I brought it in. I gave it a bath. I trimmed its nails. I combed its hair. I gave it a new collar, looking for its family. Tons of those. You know what I did not see? Found a stray human. Gave him a bath. Cut his hair. Gave him some new clothes. Looking for his family. I didn't see any of those. I know there's complications with all that. I understand that. But which post would Jesus be making? Sometimes we better recalculate and think, Jesus says you are of much more value. Why? Why are humans of more value than the animal kingdom? There's what's called a utilitarian ethic, and it's big in colleges. And the utilitarian ethic is this, that your value, my value, is based on our utility, what we bring to the table. So based on that, if a human doesn't bring something to the table, they're of no value. So the statement that gets made, it's made by a Harvard bioethicist who is leading this charge. He says this, a healthy pig is of more value than a handicapped child. Because the handicapped child is a uh, negative. It takes resources for that handicapped child. But a healthy pig gives you bacon. So it's of more value. That's the utilitarian ethic. All based on what you bring to the table. Your value is based on what you have, what you're able to bring, how you think. How's that work out for a culture? If our value is always based on what we're able to contribute or what we bring, how does that work for humans. I'll give you an anecdotal kind of my own thought on it. So if you look at Silicon Valley, the most prosperous, wealthiest place on the planet, highest achievers, highest everything, concentrated in this little tiny section called Silicon Valley. What you may not know is this. There has been an epidemic in that area of teen suicide. A teenager in Silicon Valley is four times more likely to commit suicide down there than any other, plant, any other place in our country. Why would that be? Pressure. What are you bringing to the table? You got parents that are leading Google and Facebook and whatever, Instagram and Apple and Hewlett Packard. They're leading the world. And you got these kids with all this pressure on them. What are you going to bring to the table? Are you getting straight A's? Is your SAT score? All that pressure. And they're like, I can't do it. I'm out. I think that's what's happening. No, the Bible is different. It's not about what you bring to the table. It's what God has put into you. And the Judeo-Christian ethic for 4,000 years has said this. Every human has value, dignity, and worth for one reason, because they are an image bearer of God. And you protect that life period. And that's brilliant. That's a life-changing thing right there. Jesus says, you're more value. You're more value. That's the right way. So Jesus, first, we did eat last time. That's just a review. Now there's two more he's got to do. All right. What about fun and what about looks? So drink, wine, fun, the Applegate Valley wine trail, right? That whole idea. 
Is that what life is all about? We live now in what's called a secular society. Secular means now. Everything's now. What does it do for me now? How does it make me feel now? YOLO, right? You only live once. Let's live it up. Let's have fun. Let's have a great time. And that idea has crept into the church. So one of my favorite quotes on this is by C.S. Lewis. Let me read it for you. What would really satisfy us would be a God who said of anything we happen to like doing, what does it matter so long as they're contented? We want, in fact, not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven, a senile benevolence who, as they say, liked to see young people enjoying themselves and whose plan for the universe was simply that it might be said at the end of each day, a good time was had by all. Isn't that America? Or put another way, by my favorite philosopher, Dwayne Londigan. If you're saying, I never studied Dwayne Londigan, that's because he was my college roommate. There were six of us packed in this tiny little duplex and Dwayne Londigan was there with us. And this was a time in my life that I, was, I went really dark in my faith. Took a class called the Jesus Seminar at OSU and this professor dismantled my faith. I've talked about it before here. Dark time, didn't know what I believed. Wasn't sure if I believed in Jesus, wasn't sure if I believed in God, wasn't sure if I believed in the Bible, just a dark time. And so I remember I came home and Dwayne was in our tiny little living room. Like that living room was so dinky. It was like the size of a closet. So I'm in the living room with Dwayne and you can't really sit there. We just stand in our living room because that's all you could do. So we were standing in the living room and I was just kind of like, ugh. And I looked at him and Dwayne was the fun guy. He was the guy that was always having fun. You know, every room, every like crew needs it. Dwayne was the fun guy. So I looked at Dwayne. I said, you know what, Dwayne? I wish the world was this way. I wish that you could be born, live, have fun, die, and that's it. There's nothing else. And I'm expecting him to be like, yeah, that's it. Have fun. He looked at me and said, really, Matt? Really, that's what you want? Then you better have fun. What are you doing standing here right now? Get out and have fun. If fun's all life is about, then you're wasting time right now. You better never sleep in. You better have fun. You better make sure you have more fun than anyone else. You better find out what they're doing to have fun and then they'll compete with them and have more fun than them. You better fun, 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 fun. That'd be exhausting. I was like, chill, bro. Man, you've thought about this before. I don't want to have fun then. Fine, you win. <laughs> He's right. Like these things are great servants, but they're terrible masters. So this is what Jesus says, verse 27. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? Think about your life. That's what Jesus is saying right here. Think about your life. In a very similar section in Luke where he's talking about anxiety, talking about the same kind of stuff, listen to what Jesus says in Luke 12, 4 and 5. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who can kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell Yes, I tell you, fear him. That's a sober little passage, isn't it? 
Is fun life, right? Is, is life just, is the best way to live life to have fun all the time? Because rich people are the best at it, aren't they? They can pay for the best vacations. They can drive the best cars. They can eat the best food. Whatever it is, they can do it the best. And every study shows the wealthier you, you get, the more likely you are to commit suicide, get depressed, or get divorced. So maybe, maybe that's not it. Here's the truth Jesus is trying to get to us. We're eternal. We're eternal. This life, as great as it is, this life is chapter one. It's not even chapter one. It's page one. It's not even page one. It's paragraph one. It's not even paragraph one. It's sentence one. It's not even sentence one. It's word one. It's not even word one. It's letter one. It's not even letter one. It's pixel one. And we get all into like, I got to cram as much fun into one little pixel as I possibly can. Good luck with that. We're supposed to get this perspective. Yeah, have fun. But here's what the Bible says, even about hard things. It's one of my favorite verses. It's 2 Corinthians 4.17. Paul says this, these light afflictions, not fun, these light afflictions are but for a moment, a pixel. But they're working for us. What did Paul just say about difficult times? They're working for us. They're our employees. They're our servants. An eternal weight of glory. Man, you can stop with a cup of coffee or tea and just meditate on that passage. We need a better perspective. You want to stop anxiety, being needy and desperate, and everything that comes with it, and just, ah! You want to be like the psalmist in Psalm 23.5, one of my favorite little verses. He says this, God, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies the people that want to kill me, the diff as difficult as it possibly could be, what does Paul say? It's bread. Or David say, he says, it's bread for me. It's feeding me. It's nourishing me. How do we become those kind of people? Is it the next fun event? A vacation? Because if you drink from that well, you'll thirst again. Have you noticed that? You take one vacation, about a month later, what do you want again? another vacation, because you'll keep drinking from that well over and over and over again. The next event, the next entertainment, you'll drink from that well you want, you'll be thirsty again. Here's what the great Augustine said. He said this, our hearts are restless, anxious, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. That's what Jesus is saying right here. You're all focused on the pixel. Hey, get the right perspective. Get an eternal perspective. Realize that life is more than just fun. Realize even difficulty, hard times, man, you're their master. One of my favorite examples of this is Jonathan Edwards. People that study these things that are much smarter than me say, Jonathan Edwards was the greatest theologian America has ever produced. And maybe you don't know this about him. In his young days, he's 
graduate and he's done all this stuff and study, gets a job as a pastor. He's there. The deacons get together. It was a deacon-run church back then. The deacons got together and they fired young Jonathan Edwards from his job. Can you imagine being the people that did that to Jonathan Edwards? What a bummer, huh? Be like the coach that cut Michael Jordan. Like, oh, that was kind of a blow it case. And one of the deacons the next day you know, after they made this big decision, they fired Jonathan Edwards, he's gone. He sees Jonathan Edwards walking down the street, whistling and singing and smiling. And this deacon writes, he was cut to his heart because he said, that guy has something I'll have. He just went through, he just got fired from his job, right? And he's happy-go-lucky because the well that Jonathan Edwards drank from was not his job as a pastor, not having fun, because that's not fun, the well he drank from was deeper and eternal. He knew this is just a pixel. That's all it is. Life goes on. Even hard things. I have a saying, hard's not bad. I tell it to my kids over and over, and over hard's not bad. It, it's bread for you. It's a table in your enemies. It does something for you. When you get that, you can enjoy fun then. You don't have to put all the pressure on. Fun, 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 fun. Because I know also, hey, even difficulty, when it comes into my life, serves me. That's the right perspective. And then lastly, Jesus talks about looks. Clothes. Did you think about how you look this morning? Anyone look in the mirror this morning? I did, Right? I try to put on some clothes and hopefully not look like a geek or whatever, right? Maybe I failed, I don't know. But I'm a little concerned about it. But can looks become a taskmaster that destroys? Yeah, we have good, we've had diseases, right? Bulimia and anorexia because looks have got in the wrong position in someone's life. And what at its core, why at its core do we worry about how we look? Isn't it control? Isn't anorexia and bulimia ultimately about controlling something? People that get really dressed up, they, they call uh, uh, certain kinds of suits, they call them power suits because there's a, a certain color, a certain cut, and it makes you more confident looking. It makes you more powerful looking, makes people take notice of you. So they've kind of figured it out. What's that all about? Control. If someone wants to look really tough, what do they do? Put on their leather Hell's angel coat or something, right? If someone wants to look like they're hip, it's put on your Dior Jordan 1s. Like, look how hip I am. If someone looks like they don't care, then they're gonna kind of look trashy, right? There's all these ways that clothing really is a way to control. And Jesus says, looks, really? Really? Flowers look better than Solomon in all of his glory. Really? These flowers that are here for one day in God, they look better than anyone. <laughs> I love the example of Solomon. I wonder if Jesus, when he's talking about Solomon, is talking about Ecclesiastes chapter two, where Solomon gives his testimony about how he lived searching for meaning, searching for life, searching for what gives flourishing. And he lived at a level no one can live at today. I've gone to Israel and visited the lakes that he dug 3,000 years ago. So while the fountain at my house is awesome, probably not gonna be there in 3,000 years. He did things that still last to this day. 
He had parties in his house. So big, they counted up the amount of food that they would cook every day for Solomon, and it was enough food to feed 15,000 people. So I'm gonna have a couple people over at Thanksgiving. It won't be 15,000, right? Every level, it's bigger. He says, I bought singers for my house. Taylor Swift, I own you now. I just bought Sony Records. You're playing my house. Bring Travis Kelsey, because I bought the Chiefs as well, right? That's the level of Solomon. I just read it. it just, it's a mind-blowing testimony, especially because of where it led him. Listen to these verses at the end of chapter two. This is verse 17. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. Verse 18, I hated all my toil. He's the king. Doesn't seem hard to me. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun. And then verse 20. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. That's what it got him. Solomon would say, flowers have it better than me. They have it better because they're doing exactly what God designed them to do. They're flourishing, they're beautiful, they're joyful. So what are we missing? The truth that Jesus says is this. It's verse 30, I'll read it again for you. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? What do we miss? It's a faith question. Because what do looks get us today? We have a culture that's really, you are what you wear. Billions are spent on cosmetics. Billions are spent on clothing. Billions every single year. Because we believe clothing gets us what we want. It's a way to compete with people. It's a way to be trendy or sexy or whatever it is, right? The coolest, the hippest. I would even say the most modest. You can compete to be more modest than someone. You know that? Look at my bonnet. I bought it from an Indiana Amish mom. Wow. Look at my dress. I made it from a Mervyn's curtain. Look at this, right? I'm telling you, like we use it all the time. Because here's the thing in America, looks work. Attractive people, it's worth a 15% raise. You do the exact same job as somebody, you look better, you get 15% more. Taller people get more promotions and make more money, just the way the world works. So what happens is this, we start to know that. So we start to trust in the world system. If I look this way, if I wear these clothes, then I'll get what I want. I'll get the wife I want. I'll get the job I want. I'll get the views I want, right? And then we get all anxious about, oh, that person looks better than me. I don't look as good as them, right? Then anxiety sets in. Jesus is saying, you can do that system. It'll make you anxious. There's an alternative. You think that's gonna get you what you want? There's an alternative. Listen to these verses. Psalm 75, six and seven. For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes 
lifting up. But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. The Bible says for believers, it's not your looks or your clothes. It's God that lifts up. It's God that elevates. Or Jeremiah was told this, Jeremiah 27. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, this is what you shall say to your masters. So tomorrow morning, say this to your boss. It is I who by my great power and my outstretched arm have made the earth with the men and animals that are on the earth and I give it to whomever it seems right to me. We believe it's through clothing or looks or this thing or that thing that we're gonna get what we want. The Bible says God controls that. Where do we put our faith? Do we put our faith in this system, in this culture where billions and billions are spent and there's this cycle and it's anxiety? And, or do we say, no, God lifts up and God sets down and I'm trusting him. One leads to anxiety, the other leads to peace. Well, it's awesome, Matt, so I can just sit around and be a slob then. No, lead Jesus' conclusion. Verse 33 is the clincher. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. That's where we're supposed to live. Right there, seek first the kingdom. It's faith or fear. Am I living out what I live out based on fear and anxiety and striving? Or do I live out what I live out based on faith in God? I think a lot of us, if we're really honest, we're afraid of verse 33. We're afraid of throwing in all with God. Just saying, I'm all in God. Whatever you want me to do, wherever you want me to go, I'm in. I think we're afraid of that. Because we think if we do that, God will make our life miserable. Don't we? Just a little back there voice. Oh, he's gonna send me to Mongolia. I'll have to eat bugs and live in a yurt. I don't wanna do that. He's gonna embarrass me and make me share like door-to-door -door witnessing to all my neighbors or stand on a corner with a sign. No, right? We believe that. Where would that lie be coming from? Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. That's what he says. Listen to another way the psalmist put it, Psalm 37, verse four. Delight yourself in the Lord. Seek first the kingdom and he will give you the desires of your heart. All these things will be added to you. Do we believe this? Do we have faith in that? How about this one, Romans 8, 32? What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, is God for you? Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. 
See, this is a faith question. Do we believe that? Do we believe God is for us? Do we believe God has given us his best already in Jesus? And if he gave us the best, we can trust him with the rest. That's how you live an anxious free life. They did this study on people that read their Bibles. They found that people that read their Bibles all the time report, 80% of them report peace all the time or most of the time. That's pretty amazing. What's happening? It's Isaiah 26.2. He will keep you in perfect peace when your mind is stayed on him. I'm seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and he's adding all these things that I actually want to me. That's what happened.